0: Welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we're speaking to the English conductor Nicholas Collin, founder of the groundbreaking Aurora Orchestra, about his musical loves from the Bach piano pieces he learned as a child to chamber masterpieces by Mendelssohn and haunting English choral works. Nicholas Collins' musical upbringing was wonderfully varied, including a spell as a viola player in the National Youth Orchestra before a scholarship to Cambridge saw him hone his skills in the organ loft at Clare College. At Cambridge, he met Robin Ticciati, with whom he would go on to set up the London-based Aurora Orchestra in 2004. The orchestra has gone on to win huge acclaim for its inventive approach and live wire performances, both in concert and on disc. Its performance of Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique at the BBC Proms, played entirely from memory, was one of the highlights of the 2019 season. Nicholas talked to BBC Music Magazine's deputy editor Jeremy Pound over Zoom in the mists of lockdown and shortly after the Aurora Orchestra had released Music of the Spheres, its new disc of works by Mozart, Dowland, Ades, Richter and David Bowie.
1: Right, I'm here with, with Nicholas Collin and we are currently mid-lockdown. I'm, I'm calling from, from Cheltenham. Where are you at the moment, Nicholas? At home, North London. Excellent. And how has lockdown
2: been treating you so far? Fine, really. I mean, the, the, the nice bit of it for me has been being at home and having a, a lot of time with the family. I've got three young kids and obviously, you know, as a conductor, you spend a lot of time away from home which is one of the difficult things about being a conductor. Uh, so actually, amidst all the chaos and all the difficulty, it's, there have been moments of peace and, and
1: lovely um,
2: domestic, I wouldn't say bliss, but, you know, enjoyment, let's say.
1: I've been talking to a, a number of musicians who've said they've used this opportunity to get to learn new repertoire or actually kind of re, relearn old repertoire. Have you been doing much of the same? <laughs> um, honestly... No, uh, <laughs> but
2: simply because of the family. Uh, I would have actually really quite enjoyed the possibility of doing that. Um, I tend to find in normal life that I get most of my work done when I'm on the road anyway, because when I'm at home, it's, um, there's a lot going on and I feel, you know, I need to see the family, etc. Uh, so <laughs> this is sort of even concentrated that. But on the other hand, you know, um, I don't really know what my next concert is going to be. And also, it's quite nice taking a little break from this. You know, I've been conducting pretty, pretty full time since I was, what, 21 or something, so 15, 16 years. And, uh, and going from week to week, learning new repertoire, always having the pressure and the burden of what's coming next. And not having that is, is, a, is a lovely thing just for once to be forced to take a
1: step back. Excellent, good. And of course, you do have a new album out, which we're going to go on to later on in this conversation. So I'm going to ask you all about that. So that's something to sort of keep you semi-occupied, I guess. Yeah, that's right. No,
2: there's been a lot behind the scenes with Aurora going on online digitally. And uh, yeah, you know, it's been fun keeping... (laughs) <laughs> above, above
1: water during this, this period. In the meantime, I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back a little bit to your, your first musical beginnings and then thereafter, because in these Music To My Ears interviews, we're asking musicians to tell us about the pieces which have inspired them over the years and continue to do so today. Now, um, I understand that the first piece that really inspired you, presumably when you were a nipper, was Ambar C Major Prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier. Is that correct? Book one, that's right. Um, My grandmother was my piano teacher.
2: Uh, She was a fantastic pianist and teacher, and she used to come every week, and I have three older sisters, she'd teach them as well. Um, Every Wednesday she would stay, and uh, I suppose even when she was teaching my sisters the piano, which was before me, because they're older, um, I, you know, used to have many times listening to her play practice teach and it was wonderful um I remember particularly it's just one of my first memories I don't know I must have been four five six something um hearing the beat the 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 C major prelude, which you know of course is a very famous piece um but thinking so something clicked in me and thinking you know I've I've got to play that piece I've got to be able to make those harmonies sound like that and I guess um well there's something amazing about it isn't it because it's so it's so wonderfully simple yet actually it's very clever the way he twists and turns in in the harmonies of it uh, so uh, yeah it's something made me think i could probably be able to do that one day because it it's just a pattern of chords and and i i remember just lying there on the floor thinking this is the most amazing thing
1: Now, there's a kind of whole generation of pianists or not, actually just a generation of musicians who have started playing the first C major prelude. And then they've gone on through the book, working on the preludes and kind of leaving out the fugues because they're a little bit more tricky. Were you one of those? Well, they are, you
2: know, they are hard, these pieces. They really are tricky. And, and And I spend quite a lot. When I do have a few minutes, I sit down and play. Um, a bit from the well tempered clavier because it's really good to keep your fingers in in trim order and you know every key understanding all the keys and they're so they're they're so amazing and so wonderfully clever. Uh, no, my grandmother insisted on learning you know bits of everything and exploring the dark keys as well, <laughs> so you don't just get the tricky stuff. But I remember you know on my own sitting on a piano stool and trying to get through sort of whatever C sharp minor and oh all these double sharps and god getting so frustrated <laughs> but um but it's worth it somehow isn't it I mean I've,
1: I've certainly not learned them all I was about it's worth it for you because you can probably play them all and some of us kind of got stuck fairly early doors to be honest with you <laughs> well no, I, to be honest no I don't think I could play them all um there, there are some that would be beyond me probably yeah Even to this day. Excellent. Good. Did you feel from very early on that you were likely to be a musician?
2: I didn't view it in those terms. I viewed it in... Nothing else ever occurred to me, put it that way. So I never thought, oh, I'm probably going to be a musician. I didn't even think about it, to be honest. So I must have just known that I was going to do that. didn't even really occur to me what that would be as a job or as a lifestyle. I just sort of knew I was going to do music. I have no idea why. I mean, I was very fortunate to be uh, brought up in a musical household and and taught music from an early age. So, yeah, I always had that that sort of advantage. Um, But uh, no one pressurised me into going into music. And my three sisters have done completely different careers. But for some reason, it it was all I ever wanted to do.
1: I understand that you also played the viola as well as the piano. And of course, we're... Later on the organ, which we're going to move on to as well. Um, were you a, a good viola player? Are you a very good viola player? Um, I'm not anymore. I, I, <laughs> I've actually started playing the viola
2: very small amounts after a hiatus of about ten or fifteen years because my son's learning the violin, so it's quite nice to play along with him. I mean, I was I was all, all right. I played in the National Youth Orchestra. I played lots of chamber music. Um, I, I suppose if I hadn't ended up as a conductor, the one thing I did want to be was a viola player in a string quartet or playing chamber music. Um, that's probably, you know, that was the nearest um, side avenue. And when did the organ playing start? Around the same age as the viola. So I, I turned from violin to viola about thir- age 13. Uh, I think I started the organ when I was 14. Um so it was about the same time, yeah, that I expanded the
1: the arsenal.: Excellent. And did you sing as well, or is it were you always just an instrumentalist?
2: Yes, I sung. um I would
1: be the first to confess
2: I'm not a singer. I've sung a lot. <laughs> Make of that as what you will. Um, you know, I don't have a particularly beautiful, um, natural voice. I, I suppose I'm able to, you know, sight, read and um, sing, write pitches. And I sang a huge amount in choirs. Uh, I actually sang for a couple of years, which was quite useful when I just left university, in a close harmony group. And we did lots and lots of concerts and, um, you know, after dinner engagements and all that kind of thing. And that repertoire is brilliant and, and great fun and actually incredibly good for musical training you know it's just like chamber music in that way uh so
1: um i've
2: i've loved singing yeah it's been a big
1: part of my life now of course what what is what voice are you these days a sort of a baritone tenor bass 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 and and i did used to sing quite a bit of counter tenor <laughs> if i can so oh, right. close many days yeah <laughs> now kind of following the timeline along um eventually your your organ playing and your academic prowess took you to cambridge Um, where you're an organ scholar at Clare College, Cambridge, I understand. And now I'm working this out and thinking about that must have been with Timothy Brown as the director of music there at the time. Am I correct about that? That's right. How how was your time at Clare? Was it presumably very enjoyable? Oh, it was a whirlwind. I mean, when
2: I think now for all these poor students at the moment... Who are having a great swathe of their time cut out of university. It's tragic, isn't it? Because all it is 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 an eight-week term. <laughs> it's nothing. You know, and yet um, it's a defining moment of of well certainly of my life it was, of many people's lives. And it's it's hardly anything in terms of time. But the days are so concentrated. I remember, you know, getting up very early, going to bed very late, practicing the organ <laughs> until 2 a.m. in a fever of 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 terror. I'd have to play certain things in even song the next day, getting up, doing a piano quartet practice, trying to conduct something at lunch, pretending to do an essay. I mean, it was just, it was sort of horrendously busy, actually, if I look back on it, um, but an amazing time,
1: yeah. I want to go on to your next choice of music, which you're going to talk about, and that's the most memorable concert you've ever you've ever been to. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: <laughs> it's a funny choice. I mean, there are plenty of, of stellar quality concerts i've been to you know ones that stay in the memory like a berlin philharmonic prom or whatever um in truth i cannot remember who was performing but when i was about 14 watching um, my favorite piece as a teenager which was the mendelssohn octet for strings in the cambridge summer music festival which my aunt ran so i used to go and watch quite a lot of concerts there every every summer when i stayed with my grandmother learning the piano um and i I'm afraid I can't tell you who the performers were. Uh, but I just remember thinking, wow. this!" Is, you know, I, I longed to see that piece in the flesh because it was one of my favourite things that I grew up on. Uh, and it was so exciting. And I just remember being knocked off my feet to actually hear it live. So it's stuck in my memory.
1: Excellent. And did it at the time, because if you were 14 at the time, you were just two years younger than Mendelssohn was when he wrote that piece did that sort of kind of were you aware of that at the time think I've always (laughs) been uh that's the problem
2: with Mendelssohn and Mozart and Schubert (laughs) I mean I'm now older than Mozart and Schubert were when they died of course um uh yeah no you have a an unbelievable sense of what how did he do that Mendelssohn (laughs) you know that and the other early pieces it's it's an astonishing work of originality isn't it
1: As you say, and it wasn't just the one piece at that age, it's this kind of this whole stream of works of genius written within his teenage years. It's sort of slightly sobering. It really is, yeah. back to Cambridge. Um, One thing I want to ask is that um, I've interviewed a fair number of conductors in the past who were organists before that. Is there something about the control freak mentality of being able to play the organ which makes people want to become conductors and directors of music as well? The thing about the organ that appealed to me, I loved the instrument actually, I loved um,
2: elements of playing it. But I I did use it as a vehicle towards being a conductor. And and you know, I was given the advice when my other well, I was probably 16, 17, that a really good route to being a conductor was via being an organ scholar where you get to conduct the choir, you're um you know, you're advancing uh, s- certain areas of musicianship that are really important, such as your oral training and being able to hear and sing and whatever. Um and and so I think a lot of conductors and the wannabe conductors think in that way and, and sort of use the organ as a vehicle. Uh, I, I knew I was never going to be sort of trapped in that world. It, I, I didn't want to be stuck in the world of choral music or indeed church music um, or as an organist at all. It was For me, it was a vehicle to, to a, a later route as a conductor.
1: Can you just put things in a timeline for me here? I presumably you were... Um... You were conducting chamber orchestras, orchestras as well, quite a lot at Cambridge. How long after you left Cambridge did you found the Aurora Orchestra?
2: Oh, um, well, it's sort of the seeds of it started in my final term at Cambridge, actually. So um, there was myself and another conductor, Robin Tucciati, and we were both contemporaries at Clare, so the same year doing music. Um, And a couple of other people, Clemmy Burton-Hill and someone called Louis Watt, uh, a a sort of music lover who's gone into um, consultancy, in fact. Uh, So it was (laughs) the four of us. And we um, started the orchestra really, well, our first concert was then the following April. So it it got going a lot from around December 2004, which was just after I left
1: Cambridge. And of course, one of the things which you're really well known for um, with the orchestra is performing from memory. Um, has that been part of the aura orchestra 's kind of gig right from from the outset?
2: No, not at all so that was um two thousand and five was our first concert. The first time we ever did anything from memory was two thousand and fourteen in the BBC right. proms with mozart forty and uh no it was a, that was a new idea and it uh, you know it's it 's a wonderful and very enjoyable and uh eye opening thing for us to do at the moment it's um it's only a part of what we do you know it's probably a third of of the concerts we give involve that element um but it's it's opened up a lot of really interesting avenues into how we present music how we perform music and how we think about the, the music that we're making together it's it's been a really important part of aurora's makeup i i think
1: Did you have any grand visions for Aurora Orchestra when you set out, kind of what you wanted to achieve, or was it simply a case of you were doing something you were enthusiastic about and wanted to play it by ear as you went along? At the beginning, it was... um... It was the latter. It
2: was very much... Uh, the idea was to get players together who we knew from the National Youth Orchestra and music colleges, etc., etc., and put them together in in some kind of small ensemble and perform concerts. And it didn't really have much of a long-term vision other than that. And it took quite a few years, actually, three, four, five years, to really think about what our raison d'etre would be. And by that point, Robin had had left. He left in 2006, um, and it made more sense anyway, perhaps having one person and one vision uh, to to move it forward and and I suppose um, you know we really had to think about why we should exist in this very crowded market <laughs> uh, you know london 's got a huge amount of chamber orchestras and orchestras and 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 we wanted to be able to make our own mark and do our own distinctive thing.
0: If you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist, where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed, as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description.
1: And of course, an ensemble like yours kind of lives and dies by its players does not it by by that i mean that players you need to have the character you need to have the vision to go along with what you want with so presumably choosing your players inviting them to play must be actually quite a, a complex business you can't just pick anyone and say you can fit in there absolutely and and it's one of aurora's biggest assets is the quality of
2: our players and their outlook and their flexibility you know um we there is an absolute clear mentality that we are there because we love doing it. It's not a job; it's it's a passion, and that people want to have the freedom to experiment and do something different. And uh, you know, therefore, it gives me the freedom to say to players, for example, "Shall we try this from memory?" Which perhaps with certain you know contract orchestras would be impossible, uh, or to say, "Shall we?" stage is something fantastic or whatever it might be should we play in masks and and that's um, that's been amazing you know and they are so they're so wonderful and instrumentally uh, on their own uh, setup you know they're they're fantastic but they also have a really
1: um, eyes wide open outlook on music and the profession Mm. I've also seen you kind of when you've been letting your hair down a little bit as an ensemble because I many years ago so the orchestra must have been about six years old at the time I went to the proms with my my son and my niece and nephew to see you playing in the horrible histories proms for instance And I remember that so you you were very sort of you were very sort of eclectic right from the beginning yeah that was great fun that was actually one of the best proms we've ever done (laughs) it was it was
2: so much fun and I think um Horrible histories actually taps into a a strand that is very important to us, which is um uh, the idea of uh, using music as a tool to uh, open up um everybody's ears cross generation general how do you say that inter general I can't even say it, (laughs) intergenerationally. There we go. Um, Very good. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, And Horrible Histories achieves that in a fantastic way, doesn't it? It's not patronising. It's um, interesting to both old and young. It's funny. It's amusing. It wears its heart on its sleeve. All those things that we've enjoyed doing ourselves, being emotional and... and, um, standing up for music you know being a, a sort of standard bearer for it waving the flag for it and and that's um that yeah that's part of the message that we want to get across that music is just fun like you know come to a concert for fun come and enjoy this um
1: entertainment mm. now i'm going to take you back to um one of the pieces which we really want to talk about for this interview um i want to ask you about one piece which you couldn't live without right from sort of the outset so what what is the one piece which has always stayed with you from the beginning I don't know if it was from the beginning
2: but I'd certainly known it from about the age of 10 11 um, the Goldberg variations I'm afraid some more Bach Um, I guess of all composers Bach is the one for me that has been there all the time Uh, you know if I've ever felt down or I've ever been sort of alone or felt um, stressed or whatever uh, Bach has been there uh, to listen to and of course there's such an amazing variety that I, you know just playing being able to play so much on all my instruments there's the organ music which people don't really know but it, you know it is just wonderful books and books and books of it and and um, you know I got through quite a few books as an organist all the keyboard music and then as a violinist and a viola you get the Brandenburgs so you get all these um, orchestral pieces as a conductor you get the Passions and the B minor mass, and it's it's um, it's everything. I mean, it's you know jubilation, joy, right through to the brilliant sort of clear mathematical genius of it. Uh, and the Goldberg variations sort of sums all that up, doesn't it? It's it's um, a condensed form of that. And I, I, mm. I found it, in, you know, at times when I remember when I was young, taking it around on my little sort of portable tape player or whatever it was (laughs) however we used to listen to music and it was a recording of Rosalind Turek playing and it would just it would give me solace I suppose
1: and and you've stuck with Rosalind Turek ever since is that because it's the kind of the first one you heard and that sort of lodged with you or is it still the the recording which you'd always always choose
2: yeah uh, it's interesting I mean now I've listened to it again it it's there. Is elements of it, of course, that are quite old fashioned. Um, but I have to say, she was. I mean, because of course she played it on the harpsichord and the piano. She has just a remarkable and pure sense of character. I, I'm really not into Glenn Gould playing Goldberg Variations or Matchbox. To be honest, it just doesn't is is not for me. Um, I loved uh, listening the other day to Igor Levit's. Um, I think it's new. Is it new or quite new recording? I think it's fairly new, yes. A yeah. wonderful playing. I mean, that is glorious. And that's up-to-date Bach playing. <laughs> but what yeah. Rosalind Turek was achieving was, um, when did she record it? I suppose 80s or 90s or something. Uh, it, was, um, it was really outstanding playing.
1: Now then, I want to move on to your, your latest disc with the Aurora Orchestra. I love the the music you've chosen for the latest disc. Um, it's kind of a very eclectic mix of Richter, Ades, Mozart. How did you choose that?
2: Well, the Mozart was a piece we wanted to record since we played it from memory. And actually, this is the first time we've recorded a piece playing from memory. Um, I think it's probably the first time that's, uh, anyone's done that with a piece of this scale Uh, So it's quite an interesting experiment to see if we can hear anything different in the results. I don't know um, what listeners would think. But uh, we wanted to to record the Jupiter. uh, So we went off at a tangent from that and used the the Jupiter um, name to look at other works based around the the heavens, the spheres, celestial works. So it's it's quite tangential because, of course, the Jupiter um, name was just given to it the symphony by probably Salomon, actually, but no one quite knows, a contemporary of, of Mozart's probably, uh, who thought that, the, you know, that it summed up all the great and, and the good about Jupiter, the god. So um, Thomas Adders' Violin Concerto, which is called Concentric Paths, and uh, spins this amazing sort of circular web, um, which has a, a, a real celestial feel to it, uh, which I think is one of the great, contemporary concertos of any instrument um and it's a piece I've done quite a few times with Pekka Kuzisto who has recorded it with us uh and uh, I love Tom's music generally and this piece in particular I think is is just extraordinary it's an amazing gem a real virtuoso showpiece for both the orchestra and the violinist and um intellectually rigorous aesthetically and emotionally very bold and beautiful, amazing colours in the orchestra. So, uh, yeah, that was um, a piece that sort of seemed to fit together well somehow. Uh, and these are, this was a concert programme, actually, that we performed last year. And our concerts are usually quite eclectic anyway. We have a lot of varied repertoire in them. So this uh, CD or album, it matches that idea. And it's really nice, I suppose, to be able to have the chance... Um, as opposed to a lot of albums that come out, which are very single-composer-orientated, to have a a big mix of of different languages in there, because um, I I love that. I think, you know, being able to enjoy the difference between Mozart and Ades, and then, for example, uh, we've commissioned a piece from Max Richter for strings based on the first-ever Pulsar that was discovered, CP 1919, it's called, uh, a John Dowland song arranged by Nico Muley, sung by Yeston Davis, the countertenor, and then um, the well-known song, Life on Mars, by David Bowie, um, which a friend of ours, Sam Swallow, has sung with an orchestral arrangement. So um, it is quite a diverse
1: group of pieces, I guess, but it takes you on a journey, I hope. Mm. So just, I'm fascinated by the idea of recording something by memory in the studio. Because um, I can see why you do it when you're performing live, because you can... Getting ri- I've seen this firsthand. At the moment, you get rid of the score and you get rid of the music stands, the bond between you and the audience is so much greater. And it's that you can really palpably see the, the connection. Um, what was the thinking of doing it in the studio? Well, we had just
2: re- um, played it in concert for a week, I think five times. There's no way we were going to go into the recording studio and say to people, right, stick up your music stands, <laughs> open your music. It's actually very distracting playing for music if you're not used to it. Um, and all the players said, no, 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 no way. Um, we want to play exactly like we've been playing. Of course, um, that made total sense. And um, it does, it, I mean, it was a real experiment. I mean, it's, it's very tiring, actually, because you normally do like six hours of recording in a day. And doing that playing from memory is is accessing a different part of your brain you can never turn off. And uh, it's rather exhausting. We did we did bigger takes, longer takes, actually very few edits in comparison to normal um, recordings, I think you'll find. Uh, and that's because, you know, you don't want to stop and start and, and and they're playing at such a high level of concentration anyway that it just gets that sweep. And that's, I think... I think that changes the sound of what comes across. We stood up, um, apart from, you know, the chatting in between takes. We were standing up like we perform. Uh, So I think it has more of a sense of performance to it somehow, somewhere in between a normal studio recording and and a performance. And um, that's what I wanted to get because, you know, we all love the live performance, yet... We go into a studio because sometimes the live performance has too many coughs and um, split or notes and out of tune first violins, and we want to tidy all that up. So it's 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 a mixture of the two, isn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, how, is there a limit to how how long a piece you do by memory? I mean, because you take you've done the Pastoral Symphony, which is five five big movements. How 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 far would you stretch the learning by memory thing?
2: Well, we did uh, Something Fantastic last year in the Proms. Yeah, that's an hour. Yeah, um, so there's not that much music that, we, that exists really that's that memorisable beyond an hour. I mean, you can do anything if you if you if you really want. <laughs> I'm sure there's some music that's that's not very easy to memorise. Um, but that could be ten minutes long. I mean, I, I bet a piece of John Adams or Steve Reich is harder. Um, or, you know, I, I think you're right. Length length actually is the chief factor of memorising. People in the, the orchestra say it's all about how long the piece is, very <laughs> basically. <laughs> but um, having said that, it, it's surprising. It's not always at all obvious what the difficult music is to memorise. I mean,
1: a lot of people would say that Brahms' first symphony was the hardest that they've done. It's like the equivalent of pianists saying that sometimes music which sounds easy doesn't fit that well under the fingers. And sometimes stuff which is devastatingly difficult to listen to, if you sort of mean, actually fits really nicely under the fingers. It's not always as you'd imagine it would be. Totally. And the stuff,
2: I mean, in a a way, the Berlier's work quite well because um, all the things like uneven phrase lengths are actually, in a way, um, easier, sorry, to learn than uh, stuff which is really similar to to each other. So the hardest things to learn are, um, well, people found, for example, that the inner parts in Brahms' First Symphony very chromatic, very pe- repetitive, but um, always slightly
1: different. And that's that's the real mind number. I can understand that. Brilliant. Right. Finally, I want to take you on to the final bit of listening for our podcast. And this is, I'm fascinated by this because um, I know what it is already. Um, now, I'm also delighted because um, I'm going to tell the listeners what it is. It's Harris's Fair is the Heaven and Bring Us, O Lord God, which are both um choral anthems but they are both unaccompanied which as you're an organist i'm rather pleased to hear so why have you chosen these well i loved singing in choirs and i did so from the age of
2: 13 really um these are two very beautiful pieces probably only known really within the the slightly niche choral and church music world i think you if you went to a lot of orchestral musicians and you said do you know these anthems they'd probably say no um, there is a, just a wealth of choral music, isn't there? And church music that is um, unknown by so many people and is wondrously beautiful. These are just two examples. Um, so if I think sometimes about the music that I need to listen to when I'm at home or on my travels or what it might be, it's um, it's less likely to be Mahler 5 than it is late chamber music or choral music because I find that... Um, well A it's a sense of nostalgia uh, for other areas of my life and B um, it's a sound that I want to listen to I'm not convinced I want to listen to Marla 5 all day long um, but I can I can listen to uh, choral music for a good long period. You know, I you can stick on a disc of talis and then a disc of twentieth-century an- anthems, and then uh, I can listen to late four A chamber music and Schumann chamber music and Beethoven. For, you know, for a long, long time. Um, and, and and in a way, those were my early loves. I suppose. Uh, I I think also. You know, I was an organist and I was a choir conductor and I loved singing in choirs. And um, although, uh, I mean, and increasingly so, uh, I'm, uh, you know, an atheist who doesn't particularly believe in um, the rituals that I was singing about or conducting. Uh, I think there is an unbelievable beauty to the service of Evensong and more generally to what goes on in churches and cathedrals across the country. Um And that was a really important part of of my growing up, actually, was the space and um, beauty and tranquility that I used to find in those um, services and rehearsals and working with choirs, even though as an organist sometimes there's nothing more stressful in my life than playing playing a church hymn. Um, But uh, on the other hand sitting there and having the time to stop, you know. I did all of this, of course, before iPhones were invented, so I don't know <laughs> what it would be like now. But it, it was a wonderful way to um, spend time. And, and the act of communal singing is just unbelievable, I think. It's, it's, um, There's so many people in this country, of course, who enjoy that and at an amateur level as well. And uh, we know, all of us, what that releases in, inside you. Uh, as, as a person it's the, the communal act of singing and I suppose at the moment uh, it's with sorrow thinking about what coronavirus is doing that you know we know that there are issues with singing and what that can do with with the spread of coronavirus and, and hoping that, that that gets back to normal and is supported in this country because it's it's um there's a backbone of people who really need to sing together
1: Brilliant. Well, that brings us rather nicely to the end of our interview. Thank you very much for that. It's been fascinating talking to you.
0: Great pleasure. Nice to have um, chatted. That was conductor Nicholas Collin on the music that shaped his life. The Aurora Orchestra's new album, Music of the Spheres, is out now on Deutsche Grammophon. We hope you enjoy this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week when we'll be speaking to another musician about their musical passions. Do let us know what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. And do subscribe. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast and to our producers, Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Oh,